Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the Ogletree Deacons podcast. My name is Karen Tynan, and I'm a shareholder in Sacramento, California. Here with me today, again, my favorite colleague, Attorney Robert Rodriguez. Hello, Karen. Hey, so we're talking about California Workplace Violence SB 553 compliance today. And this is part three of a three-part series of podcasts. So, Robert, you ready to bring us home with this one? Yeah, ready to do it, Karen. Okay. So, we've talked about SB 553 in this new Labor Code section. So, let's talk about the two big areas that remain, record-keeping and training. I think these are critical areas for California employers to understand Do the record-keeping and training requirements apply to all California companies, Robert? Yes, they are going to apply to all of the California companies that this law applies to. So if you're under here, which in my opinion, on the reading of the law and understanding the workforce in California, this is going to reach virtually almost every employer in California. Um, So yes, you will be required to uh, both train and have a certain record-keeping regarding the SB 553 compliance. And I think you and I talked about this in maybe part two or part one, but Cal OSHA really takes the stance that if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Correct. And that's not only when there is a regulation or law requiring it, you know, a lot of times, even if there's not a a requirement, they'll say, hey, if you didn't document it, then how do we know it happened? So here it's actually double (laughs) Um, double covered because we've got the law saying you've got to keep these records um, and you've got to do this type of training as well too. Right. I think it could be an easy regulatory or general citation and you don't want to serve yourself up like that. So this requirement for record keeping is applying to almost everybody. It applies if the law applies to you, if you're not in one of those exceptions. Let's dig in, Robert. What are the record keeping requirements? Yeah, I think the, the first one I want to tackle is the, the violent incident log that's required. As we discussed earlier, this is really a 300 log about workplace violence on steroids. Yes. Uh, so not, I think the, the good place to start is that we'll go through all of the requirements, but I really want folks out there to be thinking about, to be able to fill this log out, you've got to do a lot of legwork. Yes. You've got to hit all the the requirements in the plan to be able to do that. Would you agree with that? I do. I think this isn't just an easy, oh, we're going to write somebody's name and the time and move on. It's not that kind of log. This is incredibly robust. Yeah. So let's kind of dig in deep to this. Let's really get to the nuts and bolts of it. So this violent incident log, you've got to have the date, time, and location of the incident. You've got to have the workplace violent type or types, which we discussed earlier with number one, um, number two, number three, number four. Again, those were differentiating between employee, employee, customer, criminal acts, and then also like familial or spousal relationships. So you've got to really investigate and figure out what kind of 
type that it's going to fall under and identify that type in the log. Yes. You've got to have a detailed description of the incident. And so this requirement is really, you know, for lack of a better term, pregnant with the, <laughs> with the requirement that you've got to do a really robust investigation. I mean, how else are you going to come up with a detailed um, description of the incident? And for me, in the 300 logs, you know, you've got to do kind of a description as well. But it's very... Nothing like this. Yeah, though. nothing like this. This, nothing... this, to me, a description of the incident, like it, it should include maybe even what led up to the incident, who all was involved, every kind of detail, every document that may be referenced that someone text another person. So that detailed description, I think, is an is an area that California employers really need to think about, you know, how they're going to maintain this log and the detailed description that they're going to have to incorporate in the log. Right. Absolutely. You've also got to have a classification of who committed the violence and whether that was a client, customer, family or friend of a client or customer stranger with criminal intent, coworker, supervisor, or manager, partner, or spouse, parent, or relative, or other perpetrator. And you know, as I was going through these requirements on, on my reading of the law, um, I really thought, this sounds a lot like a police report. <laughs> I agree. And this comes back to what you talked about in the second of this series of podcasts, that there's a bit of a shift from traditionally Cal OSHA and others have viewed incidents as something law enforcement would take care of. But now we've got an employer that's really doing some sleuthing and some record keeping and making some determinations that I do agree I almost sound like a police report. Yeah, right. And the next requirement is a classification of the circumstances at the time of the incident. And a lot of these kind of go back to the detailed description. I think mm-hmm. they're kind of subsumed in that. But yeah, this would include whether the employee was completing their usual jobs, were they working in poorly lit areas, rushed, um, it was, how was the staffing, um, they isolated or alone. So it's going to be really kind of digging down into the nitty gritty of um, the circumstances that were at the time of the incident. And, and one thing that employers should be thinking about or may want to be thinking about is who is going to be the point person for this? You know, who's right. going to be, you know, is it going to be the same person that's investigating these, that's filling out the log? Um, is it going to be two different people? Um, how are we going to manage this big process that's very detail-oriented? Right. And and we see in some companies, HR keeps the OSHA 300 log, but other companies, maybe a safety director keeps various logs. So I think this is an important decision for who is going to keep this violent incident log. Someone knowledgeable about all of these concepts so that they can properly classify and identify and detail all of these aspects in that log. Yeah, absolutely. The next requirement is a classification of where the incident occurred, such as in the workplace, was the parking lot or other area outside the workplace. That was what interested me, was the language or other area outside the workplace or other area. What do you think about that? I think that they're trying to make sure that they catch areas that may not be traditionally seen as, let's say, inside the factory. That maybe is, you know, some other break area or something outside the parking lot or an area where maybe employees have to go to do some part of their job. 
And so I think they're trying to define this very broadly so that they do encompass every possible type of incident in the log. And, you know, me being the attorney that I am, you know, (laughs) I I think about these hypotheticals, you know, and I think what's going to be difficult is kind of drawing the line of where it happens Mm -hmm. at work and where it doesn't because it calls out here or other area outside the workplace. So what happens if the employee's on break and goes to the convenience store next door and gets a soda and gets assaulted? You know, is that going to be a violent incident? Right. I I think that especially if they're on the clock and in an area, I I agree with you that that's going to be an interesting area. The next requirement for the violent incident log is going to be the type of incident. And this was kind of a little bit of a curiosity to me because they already require (laughs) you to have the type, meaning the type one, two, three, four. But then this adds another five or six factors that you need to describe whether or not these included in it. It's going to be, you know, was it was a physical attack without a weapon? Um, was it biting, choking, grabbing, hair pulling, kicking, punching, slapping, right. pushing, pulling, scratching, or, or spitting? Which um, a lot of these could be applicable to my two toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's it's really detailed. Um, you know, was it with a weapon? Was there a threat of physical yes. force? And one one area I found interesting on here was animal attack. You right. have to decide, you have to determine and put on the log whether or not an animal was involved. And so that's a lot of open territory for me about the animal attack situation. Right. And and I haven't seen a lot of animal attacks in my work in workplace safety. I have had dog attack on a person, right, a delivery person, and back to our electrical workers who are, you know, out crossing the Sierras, you know, hanging wire, replacing poles. I do know that sometimes there are animal attacks out in the wild. Mountain lions. Yes. Yeah. I'm not really sure how that category is going to play out. I know that they really want to make sure that every type of attack, assault, battery, everything is included in the log. And I think that's why the list is so expansive. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to look at it. So we talked about really memorializing what happened in the incident, very drilling down, very detail-oriented. The next part on the violent incident log is what happened because of the incident. Yes. Was law enforcement or security contacted? What actions have the employer taken to stop a continuing threat or to correct these hazards? So these are things that are going to have to be on the violent incident log. Is What did you do as a result of the incident, and what did you do afterwards to kind of correct it? I also call this this category, Robert, the admissions trap, (laughs) where this is basically asking an employer to make admissions about what they've had to do to resolve this issue. I do kind of wonder about how detailed consequences really should be, but in complying with the violent incident log, including whether security or law enforcement's contacted, I think that's pretty reasonable, but I think it's going to be difficult where an employer has to describe all the actions that are taking to protect employees from a continuing threat or other hazards identified as a result of the incident. So I, I think that's a an area that back to having a very seasoned professional keeping this log, you need to be a little bit careful with these entries. And kind of piggybacking on having a seasoned professional completing the log, the last requirement we're going to round out is actually who is completing the log that has to be on there. 
yes. about who actually completed it, their name, job title, and the date completed. So um, we have to identify that seasoned professional by name on the log. And I think that anytime someone is identified, you can be sure that in a Cal OSHA investigation, that person could be identified for a deposition, for in a demand for documents, right. discovery like that. So that rounds out the record keeping on the violent incident log part of the new law. And I want to dovetail. So we've talked about part of the record keeping. Can we talk about training now, Robert? Because training also, it's one of those areas where there'll definitely be documentation around it. But there are some details that I think really need to be pointed out to make California employers understand their compliance. Yeah, that's a great point. And just like with any other safety order or regulation or law, a lot of it's about training. You can have the <laughs> best plans and they can sit in a three-wing binder on the shelf and never get used. But it's really going to be about how are you training your employees to comply with the plan and how are you training to make sure that they understand what they're supposed to do in a violent incident or who they can report to. Um, and not surprisingly, that's explicitly yes. spelled out in this this new law, SB 553. Um, so all of the safety folks are familiar with effective training. So that's why yes. <laughs> it's got to be always <laughs> it's got to be effective here to, to the employees. It can't just be sign this paper. You attended a meeting. Right. That's not going to fly with this one. Um, the, the material itself, uh, the law requires that it be appropriate in content and vocabulary to the educational level, literacy, and language of employees um, that you have at the work site. And so, you know, you may have a different training for, for, for right. different types of trades and different types of workplaces. Um, and not only do I mean different types of training about the hazards, but actually how it's delivered or how it's worded. Would you agree with that? I do. And we see this, Robert, in our some of our meat processing clients where they have to have their training in Spanish and in English or in another language. And there are some nuances there where they um, try to make sure and include examples that are applicable for each category of worker and also in the terms that those workers might use so that it is effective and so that so that the workers will understand exactly what the workplace violence program requirements are and what the program means in their workplace. And, and if you recall, in, in podcast two, we talked about employee involvement. Yes. And so that also applies to the training where you've got to have yes. the employees involved in here. So I think some of that, like that slang you're talking about, or yes. those specific words, <laughs> you know, that's going to come from the employees where um, you know, they're going to kind of you're supposed to get their involvement and that, that they can provide valuable feedback about what kind of content there should be in this training. So I agree. When the program is first in place, they're going to have to go ahead and train everybody that's existing yes. there. Um, and then annually thereafter um, for it. I also think, although it's not explicitly stated in here, I do think that there might be uh, a requirement where Cal OSHA could contend there's a requirement that you have to train a new employee when they come. I agree. I think the best practice is onboarding, having the workplace violence training 
as part of your onboarding and then annually thereafter. And that's just for the this bigger training. And certainly at your safety meetings and other right. times you're going to be communicating about your program and, you know, about prevention. But that onboarding and annual is what that person, whoever is in charge of this program, needs to ensure happens. Yeah, I agree. And so there's very specific topics that have to be covered. Uh, number one is you've got to train on the plan, which yes. is not surprising, right? And you've also got to train on how to obtain a copy of the employer's plan at no cost um, and how employees are going to participate in the development and implementation of the employer's plan. So, you know, one logistic thing is how are we going to get these two employees if they ask for it? Is it going to be on the intranet? Are we going to have extra right. copies? Who are we going to direct them to? So those are things that you want to be thinking about when you're doing your workplace violence prevention plan. You also have to train on the specific definition, definitions and requirements of, of the, the plan itself. So you've got to go through those different types of violence. Those Anytime there's a quote in there in the law, you've got to go ahead and train on that as well. So that was in podcast number one where, gosh, we spent 20 minutes going over the definitions. And so those are the same definitions that need to be covered. So the training needs to be educating employees about all those terms and um, familiarizing them and helping them understand workplace violence and what the program means. Yeah, agree. You've also got to train on how to report workplace violence incidents or concerns um, to either the employer or law enforcement without fear of reprisal. So, you know, thinking ahead, how, how are employers going to do this? Are they going to have a hotline? Are they going to have an online submission? Are they going to have a person on the ground that you actually go to um, or somebody you can email or a combination of all of those? And you've got to train that um, to, the, to the employees about where they can yes. go. You've also got to train on the workplace violence hazard that are specific to the employee's jobs. Um, or workplaces, and then the corrective measures the employer has implemented, and how to seek assistance to prevent or respond to violence, and the strategies to avoid physical harm. So there's a lot packed in there. For example, if you have a convenience store in a high crime area, you've got to be training on there might be a robbery situation. Um, if it's a check cashing place, similar, there might be a robbery situation. Um, you've also got to train on what corrective measures you've implemented. Are they physical controls, um, like the engineering controls we've talked right. about in the previous podcast? Are they rules or procedures? Um, and so those kind of things are going to have to be actually in the training. You're also going to have to train on how to seek assistance to prevent or respond to violence. So if something, God forbid, does happen, what are you going to do? You know, what right. what employees, you know, how, how are we going to alert them? How are they going to be alerted? Where are they going to be sheltering in place? Or is there an evacuation area? You know, how can you contact law enforcement or who will be contacting law enforcement? Right. Those are the type of things you have to really train on. Because as you and I have seen, you know, it's almost similar to an emergency action plan. And it needs to be custom. So the emergency action plan, the shelter in place or, you know, evacuation, it'll be different for a big manufacturing location compared to, say, a logistics company or a store, Right. So this comes back to what we talked about in the prior podcast about having a highly customized plan. And then that customization is also going to dovetail in your training so that you're training people on those concepts and what they're going to do. Yeah, that's a great point. You've also got to train on the violent incident log and what it should contain. 
Um, and then, you know, a big requirement, I think, which may or may not, you know, hinder the ability to do this as a computer-based learning is uh, an opportunity for interactive questions and answers with a person knowledgeable about the employer's plan. Boom. This is, I think this is huge, Robert. There has to be this opportunity for questions and answers with a person that can answer questions and can have a dialogue. And so, uh, you know, in some of the versions of this bill, there were actually requirements that the questions had to be answered within, what was it, 24 hours, right. something like that. <laughs> Very tight turnaround. Very tight turnaround. So those were taken out. But what we're left with is that in your training, there has to be interactive questions and answers. There's no requirement for the training to take an hour or a particular number of slides or anything. It's about the information and that opportunity to ask questions and receive answers from a person knowledgeable about this employer's own workplace violence prevention plan. Yeah, great points, Karen. And so just to, to round out, um, to kind of circle back to record keeping, we talked about the, the violent incident log. I wanted to give a quick you know, bullet points of the length of time we have to keep these records. Yes. So for the um, hazard identification, evaluation, and correction records, which would be kind of inspection type records, that's going to be five years you've got to keep those. Wow. So you want yeah. to make sure those are in a safe spot somewhere accessible upon request. Training records are going to be one year. The violent incident log is going to be five years. Um, and then records of workplace violence incident investigations is going to be five years as well. That's a long time. Yeah. So there's a long time to hold on to these records. And one thing to note is all of those, those records I just described, those are going to be um, available, made available to, the, to Cal OSHA upon request. The hazard identification, evaluation, and correction, and the violent incident log, and the investigations are available to employees upon request. See, that, that really kind of gets me, Robert. Yeah. I think that the idea that there may be personal facts and personal identifying information in these investigation reports, I, I think there has to be some balancing, and it comes back to having a very savvy, experienced person managing this plan and the investigations because of the highly personal nature of some of these incidents. Right. I, I, I think a, a shorter way to say that, too, is that it's really going to rub up against privacy rights and, you know, the attorney-client privilege or work product doctrine. So it'll be interesting to see how this, this develops. Well, thank you, Robert. I appreciate you taking us through record keeping and training and this completes the third podcast of our three-part series on SB 553, the California Workplace Violence Prevention Law. Thanks for listening to Karen and Robert here. Look for our other podcast and our blog articles on ogletree.com. Take care and stay safe. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you everyone for listening. Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program.